Super Talk Mississippi media production. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday, y'all. Oh yes, indeed. We have uh, made it. Let's see. Is this the last one in the month of June? No, we still got the uh, 30th. Okay, gotcha. One more. Unamas. Yep. We're here. We uh, welcome you to the program, the ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395. If you'd like to weigh in and join the conversation, Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi, on the program at 1120. Alyssa will provide us a, a roundup of all the news from across our great state over the past week and give us a bit of a glimpse into the stories they're following for next week. And then Dr. Tanette Smith, Mississippi Department of Education Executive Director of Elementary Education and Reading, and Kristen Wynn, also with the MDE. Kristen is the State Literacy Director. They're going to give us an update on the progress made there in public education in Mississippi with respect to reading and some teacher gains as well. We look forward to those conversations. Besides that, Rhino, it's me and you. We got a whole lot to talk about. So I've noticed that the weather's been a little delightful, I would say, this week. Relatively low humidity um, and uh, nice sunshine and a bit of blue sky, which is cool. Speaking of which... Archaeologists in the Netherlands recently uncovered a 4,000-year-old, that's right, 4,000 years, a solar shrine used for 800 years. It's hard to believe. During the Bronze Age, I'll have to admit, I'm not familiar with the Bronze Age. Bronze Age was what historians... Consider the first attempts at civilization. Okay. The Bronze Age. Yeah. Okay. A lot well, of countries you probably didn't learn the names of in history class. Because makes sense. For the longest time, there wasn't a whole lot known about them. It's only been in the last 20, 30 years that archaeologists have really been able to figure out what happened. And there's still a lot of questions as to why the Bronze Age ended. They call it the Bronze Age Collapse. Hmm. And there's a lot of research being done on exactly why it happened. Some people point to a group of nomadic warriors known as the Sea Peoples Hmm. that descended upon coastal towns and countries and just raided and pillaged. But there's another 
camp of thought that sees that as like the, the the last straw that society was already kind of reaching its pinnacle at that point with the technology available and the understanding of the world but there were kings and countries sending letters back and forth requesting aid from the sea peoples and they found the tablets still in the the kiln being fired wow so yeah it's it's a fascinating point in history and it for a lot of the history that we know about from the bronze age became mythic stories like probably the most famous is the trojan war for a long time historians thought troy was just a mythical place until they found it right so it's interesting that you bring that point up that the length of time this endured because they're saying that this this shrine which is just consisted of the materials and the construction available at the time, which wasn't too advanced. I mean, it was just stones. kind of looks like Stonehenge. A little it's, bit, yeah. It's giant stones uh, arranged in a vertical pattern with some horizontal pieces held up by what looks like columns. 800 years. So the thing that struck me about that, something we've talked about on the program, which is just how the cycle times of innovation continue to shrink because... Mankind has created so many tools that innovators use to innovate. So when something like that, that by today's standards is ridiculously primitive, of course, is around and provides some degree of use and value, utility, for 800 years, that's just man trying to figure out how can we create more tools to advance society. It took 800 years to get past this very primitive structure that they used, uh, honestly, to start tracking and creating a calendar, is what uh, the report says. Oh, yeah. That they had positioned the columns such that uh, uh, the holes, if you will, between the columns would uh, let the sun through, would position to, to center the sun. At certain times of the year. Usually on a solstice. Okay. And then they start figuring out, wow, this thing moves around. There's something to this. I mean, it's fascinating when you look at megalithic structures from that time period and how many of them have at least something to do with the stars in the sky or the sun at solstice. Unbelievable. So this is just discovered two days ago. Well, it may have been discovered earlier, just announced the discovery by archaeologists. It is uh, the size of four soccer fields, and it's near the modern town of Tiel, T-I-E-L, which is in the Netherlands, centered around a trio of burial mounds which contain the remains of 60 men, women, and children. And I'm sure there's some significance to building the structure around the burial mounds. Something about that. I don't know what that was. I, I didn't see that in the report. But they used this structure and created rows for religious processions. They also think that one pole that stood atop the largest mound in the complex was used as a fixed observational point for a priest, which makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to predict the future or forecast a good crop or understand when the next leader of the tribe is going to be born 
and you have a primitive understanding of the way time flows based on watching these little dots in the night sky move around and the fact that oh well well those two hills they form a bit of a v on the horizon and this one day out of the year the sun sets right between them that must mean something and from there they built on that incredible so stuff that's just so easy so common to our everyday life and has been for decades centuries honestly Back then, they were trying to figure it out. It's amazing. It, I just find that fascinating. I just want to share that in the bright sun that we've had uh, over the last week. In the wake of several days of brutal storms, it, it just made me think about this. And I caught, I came across this article, and I wanted to share it. I thought it was pretty cool. A whole lot of other stuff going on, of course. The, uh, the tragedy, the wreckage of the Ocean Gate submersive. Man, uh, incredible. And I don't know that there's any additional information other than the Navy thinks that maybe they've got some record of detecting the implosion. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, the Tinfoil Hat Brigade has jumped on that and and spun it into all kind of nonsense. And it's easy to understand why, because the government seemingly knew something went wrong. Yeah. And the top-secret high-tech sonar equipment they were using did detect the sound that was very similar to an implosion. And they cautioned the Brits to not send all their equipment because it might be in vain. But there was still no way for the government to know 100% that it had imploded. And when they did find out, apparently they did pass on the information to the rescue crews, and that's how they were able to find the debris field. Yeah. So it's, it's again, it's one of those where the extremes on either side are both wrong and the truth is somewhere in the middle. And you've seen that uh, the producer of the blockbuster film Titanic, he's weighed in and said that it's eerily similar with the warnings that they had. Well, people think it's weird that James Cameron has a dog in the hunt, but yeah. the the man has been down to that depth to visit the Titanic, I want to say 32, 33 different times. I mean, there are, well, up until 2019, there were only a couple handfuls of people that had ever been at that depth, and James Cameron was one of them. So wow. he, he really was kind of an expert in the field. Wow. It's, it's tragic. It's fascinating. When we return, I'll read a statement from the company. I thought the statement was quite appropriate, honoring and recognizing those who perished in this tragedy. We're in the Element Well studio today. We're coming right back. Stay with us. That keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi.
Thanks for joining us today on Middays from the Element Well Studios on the C Spire Tax Line. Troy is not a mythical place. It's a university in Alabama. <laughs> Got it. Between this show and good things, I learn something every day, says Larry from McGee. Well, appreciate that, Larry. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the program. Let's see. Landfill Management. Inc. says, watched an interview on YouTube with Bob Ballard. Interesting. Who's Bob Ballard? Uh, famous Navy officer. Ah, okay. He I, went with James Cameron down to the yeah, Titanic I think all that. I think he's been on the news a little bit, too. Yeah. I didn't catch the name. I mean, uh, like I was saying, there are literally a, maybe a couple dozen people that can speak intelligently on it that have been there and done that. Yeah. One of the deceased's wife had a connection with passengers that died on the Titanic. Wow. I heard this somewhere yesterday. That's from Jerry in Waynesboro. That's an interesting. Yeah, I believe it's the wife of the now deceased CEO is a descendant of okay. the couple that was made famous in the Titanic movie as the elderly couple that embraced in bed as it went down. Okay. I can't remember their name. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Did the submarine not have a surface support crew that could help locate the appropriate location of the vessel, says Andy and Jackson? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, they had a support team on the ship. That's the the same people that alerted the authorities after they had lost contact for eight hours. But the more that comes out, the more it seems like this company was cutting every corner possible. Yeah. I mean, you just look at the interior photos of this craft versus essentially any other craft that has attempted to reach that depth in modern history, and it's night and day. The the technology involved, the thought put into it, the testing, the rigor, it seems like the voyages this craft took previously got really lucky. Yeah, and my understanding is that the the waiver and the release that the passengers had to sign was uh, quite extensive and comprehensive and included pages of the ways you could die doing this. That's, that's what I heard yesterday from some legal analysts. So the statement from the company, quote, these men were true explorers who shared a distinct spirit of adventure and a deep passion for exploring and protecting the world's oceans. Our hearts are with these five souls and every member of their families during this tragic time. We grieve the loss of life and joy they brought to everyone they knew. I thought that was an appropriate statement. I do think it's true. These folks did have the spirit and the... And the uh, the zest for exploration. They were adventurous people. And they starved for knowledge. And knowledge associated with the Titanic, which still lives on today as far as interest, because it's such a bizarre deal, honestly. And there's not that much time in the grand scheme of things that the Titanic will still be a recognizable wreck on the ocean floor. I mean, it's deteriorated tremendously since it was discovered in the mid-'80s. Yeah. Very true. So, just a sad deal. 
And you guys have probably seen this, but the CEO, Stockton Rush, he said he didn't hire, quote, 50-year-old white guys because they were not, quote, inspirational. So, you know, I don't want to start second-guessing here, but it is disturbing that maybe the CEO felt compelled to hire based on race and age and gender and some of these other physical characteristics as opposed to capability and knowledge and experience and skills, qualifications. Gee, I hope that's not the case, honestly. But this is a news story. There's a video going on that features him saying that. And it is. Um, this was a CBS interview uh, that where he discussed that. So, man, I hope that's not the case, honestly. But he certainly said that, and it does make you wonder. And just stepping aside from that situation, because it, it is tragic, and don't want to dwell on the political, possible political aspect of it in the wake of the tragedy, but looking at other companies, who, too, have adopted such policy, such principles. We've said it so many times on the program. It's what I call the march to mediocrity. And they're just example after example of this. And we continue to water down standards to achieve some sort of equity goal. And that's a bad move. And it's probably the the one the one political aspect of uh, in this country going on in this country that doesn't get a lot of attention. There's a lot of, you know, I'm anti-woke and all that stuff. And this I guess you could you could insert into that category. But this weakening of standards across the spectrum of society. There's no single area where this is prevalent. It's almost ubiquitous in the private sector, in government, in our military. And it is um, it is a cause for concern. Because I think most clear-thinking, rational people, when there's something serious, at least, on the line, they don't really care about their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their religion, their ethnicity, their national origin, etc. Don't care about that. But people in charge are starting to care about that and making decisions based on that, rather than merit and qualifications. It's one of the reasons that I, um, I took to Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for president, right off the bat. He says, I want to end affirmative action day one, should I be elected. He says that we've got to return to our identity as a nation, free speech, meritocracy, and the unapologetic pursuit of excellence. And when you think about excellence, excellence doesn't include, oh, giving somebody a job, a raise, a task, a function, an assignment based on anything other than qualifications. That's what he's saying. That's the unapologetic pursuit of excellence. 
And we should all be concerned about how that is affecting our world. By the way, Rhino, Barack Obama took a bit of a shot at you and me. Didn't know if you were aware of that. Not personally. Directly. I was about to say, wait, I didn't hear about this? <laughs> he said that Fox News and right-wing radio skews the facts. We make people fearful of each other. <laughs> if you can keep your do- if you like your doctor, you can keep it. Yeah, we really skew the facts there, Barry. <laughs> Take a hike. That's what he said. He said, what is true is that partly because of where people are getting their information these days, the silo wing of information, if you're watching Fox News or following some right-wing radio host, that would be us. (laughs) Or getting Facebook feeds within the bubble, the reality is different than if you read the New York Times. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You mean like the silo of information amongst (laughs) academia and empty-headed losers that believe men can get pregnant? Because they only ever talk to each other. Anybody outside that academic group and the religious zealots that follow them that know reality bites. You know, there's no doubt that we have become tribal in this country. And this is what the former president refuses to acknowledge. I'll certainly admit that there are people on the right that tend to only consume news from the right, that suits him. But, Mr. Obama, are you suggesting that's not occurring on the left? Have you watched the race lady over there at MSNBC lately? Are you kidding me? So, I'll say this. I guess, in defense against what Mr. Obama said, I do read the New York Times every day, Mr. Obama. I read it, and I share stories here. Now, normally it's because they get it all wrong, because it suits their political agenda. And I call them out. But I do read it. And I read the Washington Post. I read the Boston Globe, by far the most left-wing publication in the country. Every day, sir. I invite you to tune in to our show. I know this message won't get to you, and that's fine. Tune in. And then tell me, what are we saying that's wrong? What are we saying? This is so ridiculous. It really aggravates me. As you can tell, it irritates me. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. And we're proud to cover your state like no one else. Thanks for listening to Super Talk Mississippi. Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. Oh, mama, I can hear you Welcome back to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601 
957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The NASDAQ, all the indexes are down today. The concern is maybe it's a little overbought. That's weighing in on investors' minds, as well as over there in the U.K., the central bank raised the benchmark interest rate again because they can't seem to cool the old sticky inflation. Imagine that, the transitory inflation. Jeez. Crude oil, however, is down, and that's a little unexpected because it is the summer driving season. It's below 70 bucks, $68. A little unexpected. Somewhat good news. Hopefully you're seeing that at the pump. But Americans, rhinos, still say, poll after poll after poll, number one issue, cost of living, inflation, the economy. Yet you don't hear a lot about that from the candidates, except Joe Biden. And what he says are a bunch of lies, honestly. He even got not one, two, three, four, five Pinocchios from the Washington Post. The stuff that we've called him out for that I get pretty fired up about, I I admit, just a short two weeks ago after he went to the nation after signing the uh, the debt ceiling deal, and the whole dang thing was a pack of lies. Even the Washington Post, no conservative bastion are they. <laughs> they gave him not one, not two, three, four, or five Pinocchios, bottomless Pinocchios. Because he keeps repeating the same dang lies. I cut the deficit more than any other president. No, 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 Mr. President. You simply didn't spend more money. We've explained that. Well, so did the Post. They picked it up, finally. Imagine that. Maybe they're tuning in to the chagrin of Barack Obama. (laughs) So, I also, I got to find it. I got to share with you. What uh, he said yesterday it totally infuriated me, by the way. This was um, with the uh, the Indian president, Minister Modi. Is it Modi or Modi? How Modi. Do you Modi. Okay. Pardon me. So, it and it was in his remarks. And it was pretty innocuous. I mean, they're just, you know, they're being fanboys of each other like these leaders typically do and how great we are and we love you and you love us and that sort of stuff. But, guys, he got to the end. And literally this is the last paragraph. I'm going to read it for you. When the uh, he had the floor at that time, and, and they traded back and forth, and they took some questions. Surprisingly, not many, but they took a couple of questions from the press in attendance. And he says, let me add one thing. We uh, we have caused damage in the United States the way we developed over the last 300 years. And that's why I was able to convince my colleagues in the Congress to pass legislation, the largest climate fund ever in American, in the world history, $369 billion, $369 billion to deal with the climate crisis. And we are doing it extensively now, and I think you're going to see significant progress. He apologized. Call it what it is. That's an apology. He apologized. For this nation's contributions to the planet. That is insane. That's disgusting. It's reprehensible. It's abhorrent. 
apologized. Just like just like Barack Obama on his apology tour right after he took office. Who could forget? He's apologizing to India? Maybe the biggest polluter on the planet? Well, behind China. He's apologizing. He goes to China, gets nothing done, blinking, worthless. Placates, panders. Doesn't say anything to him about what they're doing in Cuba, a hundred miles off our coast. And he goes, and he's in the White House here, I should say, with the Indian Prime Minister, and he apologizes for America to a nation that don't have the best track record on human rights, certainly on pollution, and its emission of CO2, with no plans to correct it, to change Big-time health problems in that nation as well. And the Indians are good people. I'm not, I'm not lashing out at them. It's corrupt leadership. Selfish leadership. And this president sees fit to apologize for this nation? How would India, you think they have problems taking care of their population now? And they're on a trajectory, you know, Rhino, to surpass China, right, as the world's most populous nation. Oh, yeah. You think about how they would accommodate that population without the innovation and the creations and the inventions of Americans. doesn't come from India. doesn't come from China. It sure as hell doesn't come from the lazy Europe. It comes from this country. And you're apologizing? That's disgusting. American president should never apologize for America. What you should be saying is, hey, guys, why don't you have a clue and be like us? And by us, I mean our history of embracing capitalism and how capitalism... And by the way, you know how you, you, know how you address pollution? Capitalism. Look at what's happened in this country. You look at the charts. I know you've, you've reviewed them. We both have. Over the last 20, 30 years... And the decline in CO2 emissions, the progress in this country, as a result of capitalism. And you look at the countries such as North Korea and China and India, where they really haven't fully embraced it, it's up. It's off the chart. This country's made more progress than all the others combined. He never acknowledges that. Hey, world, get a clue. Be like America. We'd all be better off. We'd all be wealthier and healthier and have a better world. Man, he apologized. That's despicable. I, I can't stand it. Got to tell you. Well, it seems to run in the family with the Bidens. Oh, my gosh. What about that bombshell whistleblower report from the IRS? You want to tell that to the people, Hunter Biden? We've we got to around. save the soul of America. We yeah. have to return dignity to the White House. Pay no attention to the fact that my crackhead hooker humping son tried to write off prostitutes on his taxes. I saw that. The IRS did reveal that. He said it was golf memberships and golf trips, and it was some damn sex club in L.A. and fees to prostitutes. He was flying them for his personal pleasure, and writing it off on his taxes. And, you know, that makes me think of something. So the IRS says he's got a million and a half of unreported income, and he owes a hundred grand. 
I want that tax deal. I can't figure that one out. How can you only owe a hundred grand on income of a million five IRS? Last time I checked, that's not the way the brackets sort out. That's not the way the tax is applied and computed. And then there's been a revelation that he was literally sitting, right, with a, I think I got this right, either sitting or talking to the person who was paying them from the Burisma deal and scolding them because they hadn't gotten the money yet. No, that was a different bribe. Oh, okay. That was a bribe from a Chinese national. Oh, my bad. Where he's texting the Chinese national saying, my dad's in the room. That's what it and was. And we will use our power yeah. to end you. I'm not quoting it. but Yeah, but that's the, that's the gist of it. Oh, so that's a whole separate series of bribes from Chinese nationals. Not just Burisma and Ukraine. This guy was just in the full-time business of peddling his dad's influence for personal gain so he could fly prostitutes across the country. Oh, but if we talk about that, Barack Obama says, we're just not telling the truth here. Well, I guess you're saying then, sir, that the IRS agent is not telling the truth. I thought you guys loved the IRS. That's like your favorite agency, isn't it? That and the DOJ. Man, oh man, that's so ridiculous. Yesterday, I'm going to switch to affairs here in the state of Mississippi. Yesterday, at the end of the program, I started discussing a report of uh, what candidate for lieutenant governor, Senator Chris McDaniel, has discussed and laid out as his vision as lieutenant governor, some of his policy priorities. I'm going to get back to that when we return and Thomas and Greenwood wants me to once again address the uh, the Medicaid expansion situation, and I shall when we return. Stay with us. The stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Don't forget, coming up next, well, that's actually at 1120 in the next hour, Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. And today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear part two of an interview with journalist in Mississippi food, Kwanasur, <laughs> Ann Martin. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by visitmississippi.org. The show, of course, airs on Thursday and Friday at 1 to 2 p.m. across the Super Talk Network. So, yesterday at the end of the show, uh, folks, you may not have caught it, but I, I have been a bit critical. I guess you could call it that. I feel like it's just been objective in that when you look at um, what certainly 
sizes up to be the most challenging, most competitive race at the statewide level in Mississippi, you'd have to say, in in terms of the primary, the primary. Let me clarify that, qualify that. The primary, upcoming, it would be lieutenant governor. We've got incumbent lieutenant governor facing challenger Senator Chris McDaniel, who's no secret to statewide races. There's also another candidate, Tiffany Longino. Uh, Don't hear a lot about out of Miss Longino, honestly. And then Shane Quick, who who ran in the last election in 2019 as a Republican for lieutenant governor, has recently bowed out of the race. So we have three candidates, and it's top there in terms of uh, polls, private polls that I have been informed of, at least. It, it's, it's close. It depends on who you talk to. Each camp says, no, we're leading. No, we're leading which means it's probably close, somewhere in between. And even, think about it, folks, even if it's a 10-point delta, let's say it's 55-45, you don't have to improve by five points for it to become neck and neck. Just half that. So, Chris McDaniel, so I've, let me, pardon me, let me back up. So I've basically said neither candidate has come forth, in my view, that I've seen, and I've seen them all speak, and said this is what my vision is. These are my priorities from a philosophical perspective, from a policy perspective. Should I be elected, in the case of Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, re-elected? Chris McDaniel did provide some information to that extent. He supports education reform, is what he calls it. And basically, that is uh, at the heart of that is, is a push for school choice in Mississippi, which has been considered for quite some time and just hasn't got over the finish line. We do have some school choice in place with the charter schools, but we don't have universal school choice. You can't take your money as a student, as a family, and choose a school you'd like to attend uh, from any school, a list of any schools, private schools, charter schools, public schools. Essentially, enroll in those skills, and your money follows you. Is the way it works. So, these policies have been enacted in some other states, and it's gaining a lot of traction in red states in particular. Arkansas, Iowa, this past year, probably topped that list. The most notable, it was uh, as we've said, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' top priority, and she got that through. And also, Kim Reynolds, the um, Governor of Iowa. Big, big deal. Is it Kim or Kay? Um, It was a big deal in the state of Iowa. She proceeded, did Iowa, Arkansas, in enacting. Kim, Kim, thank you. I had it right. So, And then he also says, does Mr. McDaniel, fiscal conservatism. He said he'd work to put the hard-earned, quote, put the hard-earned paychecks of Mississippians back in their pockets by eliminating the income tax and the grocery tax. Said he'll fight for the American dream by cutting red tape that is crushing small businesses and cut wasteful spending. Constitutional rights, another category. He'll work to preserve religious freedom and allow for constitutionally protected prayer. He said he would protect freedom of speech by reinstating the ballot process. That's the citizen-initiated ballot process. And 
protect private property rights of Mississippians. He wants prayer back in school. I'd like to see us pass legislation where we re-implement prayer, and if challenged, take it up to the Supreme Court like we did with Roe v. Wade. He also vows to protect Mississippi's most precious through preserving pro-life policies and end soft on crime policies that jeopardize the safety of our communities. And I think these are pretty popular positions among Republicans, but, I, but I'm wondering where we have problems with this. Like, we, we have law already that's been implemented in the wake of the Dobbs case that prohibits abortions except in certain cases in Mississippi. We already have that. He does say preserve those, but I, I don't see that as a high priority because that's already in place, and I think he and the lieutenant governor are aligned on those matters. Soft on crime policies, do, is that a problem in Mississippi? I think it may be a little bit in the city of Jackson, but so does the state want to intervene there? Just some nuance uh, that I think we need to vet out. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News. And now, now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome to Hour 2 of Middays, live from the Element Well Studio on this Friday, y'all. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. So before we went to break, we were just uh, discussing a bit the um, the policy positions, division for Senator Chris McDaniel, a candidate for lieutenant governor. And so just going back on that, the education reform, School choice, that's something I certainly support. I think that, well, I don't think, uh, the lieutenant governor is not a fan of school choice, I think is one way to put it. But there are many others in the legislature that aren't as well, let's be honest. It it would take more than uh, just the lieutenant governor, that position, supporting school choice to get that through. And there there are people in my uh, my home county of Madison that oppose it, strenuously oppose school choice. And the concern, as we talked about yesterday, is that uh, students in the neighboring districts of, say, Canton, Jackson, where the schools do not perform very well, would seek to transfer into the neighboring schools in Madison County, for example, where the schools are very high-performing. And and maybe they would go to Clinton, seek to go to Clinton. Their public school system is good, and also Rankin County. So you have situations where you kind of have a, a poor-performing district that is surrounding by very high-performing districts. So it's not a, a long distance from a proximity perspective. It wouldn't take very much for a student that, say, lives in inner-city Jackson to make their, their way up to the Madison County schools. And I think this could be done in a rational, methodical way 
so that you don't have this sort of exodus from one district into another. You'd have to put some limits and restrictions around that. There, there could be some fair ways of doing that. But, you know, the goal is, the idea is, well, let's get the poor-performing schools up. Let's move them up so that they perform better. That's the idea. And when you have some competition there, maybe there's more motivation to do so. But it's also true, you cannot discount, that a lot of that starts at the House. Statistically, that's just a fact. That's been researched and proven, that the kids that come from more stable households that have parental guidance in their lives on a regular basis, they just do better in school. Kids that um, come from better economic circumstances, they just do better in school. Don't have the weight of that. I know there are kids that go to school right now in this state. It's not just in Mississippi. But it's more prevalent in the state because we're the most impoverished. We have the lowest incomes. They go to school hungry. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. I've heard that from teachers that fret over that, knowing that their kids are leaving at the end of the school day, may not get fed when they go home, may not have been fed before they got there. Of course, you have federally subsidized lunches and food and so forth, and that's fine, but... It's not three meals a day. So it's that's what we ought to be focused on, is how do we lift up our economy? How do we improve prosperity and incomes? I don't see anything coming out of any candidate. Nobody talks about that. The governor does. He's the only one. With respect to fiscal conservatism, and I said this yesterday, I'm all for eliminating the income tax. I have testified in support of that to the legislature, to joint committee hearings, finance and ways and means, respectively. Uh, I'm all for that. We have, we've taken uh, kind of a swipe at that with the bill we've passed, but just looking at how do we do that and eliminate sales tax on groceries, again, I call for those who are advocating for that, and there's some other Candidates running for office in uh, the House or the or the Senate that have also said they support that as well. Both eliminating both. I need to see a plan, man. I need to see a working economic model. Take the twenty-page or so budget. It really is not a budget. It's it's a financial statement that's structured in the form of a budget, if you will, of the state of Mississippi. And plug in, play what if, eliminate the income tax, eliminate the sales tax on groceries. What does that yield? So right now we're, we're set to produce about a $1.2 uh, billion surplus in Mississippi this year, based on recent reports from the LBO, we're ahead of Sinidot estimates in terms of revenue, about $650 million, and that's with one month remaining. So like a $53, 55000000 million run rate average. We have that, and of course we, we budgeted to spend about the same amount less than we forecast in revenue. 
So when you combine those two, it's about $1.2 billion uh, surplus. So that that's great. And, of course, you can look at that and say, well, that's an opportunity to cut some taxes. We don't need all that money. We're producing more revenue than we're spending, which is a good thing. So I would have to say that is fiscally conservative. Now, take that a step further. Is it fiscally conservative to allow people to keep more of their money, reduce their tax burden? Absolutely. Totally support that. But when you just look at the source of revenue in the state, just so you'll kind of get a feel for what we're talking about, the state individual income tax is $2 billion. That's generates roughly 32% of the revenue the state receives. Sales tax is 2.3, almost $2.4 billion. That's 36%. So between sales tax and individual income tax, that's the lion's share of the revenue generated in Mississippi. That comes out to be about 69%. And then the other, the other categories are corporate taxes, which are 10%, corporate and, and franchise tax. And I've seen people say, yeah, we need to reduce that burden. And I'm for that as well, but it's, it's minor, obviously. I don't know any companies that even consider that, just in my work in economic development. That doesn't even come up. Honestly, the tax burden doesn't come up. So it's not like a magic bullet. Uh, magic wand, silver bullet, I should say, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Um, don't magic e- bullet was JFK. Okay, that's true. Because it went around the corner, took some turns, right. And came out completely intact. How about that? And and didn't really strike John Connolly the way the trajectory showed either, right? Kind of made a turn around there. <laughs> but we digress. But nonetheless... When you look at that, and you talk to businesses that are considering expansion or locating new businesses coming in here, or existing businesses that just expand into Mississippi, that doesn't even come up. I tell you the two things that come up in my work in economic development. Number one, workforce. Like, put that number one way up there. Number two, power. There's a lot of organizations that have sought to set up factories, distribution facilities, et cetera, but mainly factories in the state of Mississippi, production facilities. Power's a big deal. And then, of course, it's access to various modes of transportation, rail, interstate, roads, exits, et cetera. Taxes doesn't even come up, I promise. They don't even talk about it. It's, like, irrelevant. And I'll tell you why, because... Federal tax, the federal tax burden. And think about your own situation. Your state taxes, in general, are really minimal compared to your federal tax burden. Um, In this state, at least. So that doesn't come up. But back to, okay, how do we make ends meet? If we eliminated the individual income tax, we got a billion tube surplus. Suppose that's systemic, that's structural, that's going to continue. It's permanent. And nobody knows. Okay, you could eliminate that. Now you got $800 million that you got a hole that you'd have to plug if you totally eliminated the income tax day one. And nobody will say, like, what's the time frame for this? Hey, I'm a candidate and I want to eliminate the income tax like next year? 
the year after, five years, ten, phase in, triggers. What's your plan? Give me some specifics. That's important. Because I think, Rhino, most people hear, hey, they want to eliminate the income tax. That means in 2024, after they're elected, man, my taxes are going down. They're zero. Well, okay, is that what you're proposing? If so, show me a budget to make the ends meet. And then, of course, you got the grocery tax. We'll get into that um, after the next segment because it's Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News, coming in next. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. The rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Brothers, set from the 70s, of course. Back with you in the Element Well Studios, we welcome now Alyssa Arbuckle, multimedia journalist, Super Top Mississippi News. I paused last week when you were on vacation. Will forgot. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alyssa. So you were just telling me a moment ago a plane has crashed mm-hmm. at Ocean Springs Middle School. No injuries. I'm looking at uh, on our website at the story, and there's a photo there. Yeah, it looks like it was on football, soccer, practice field there. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, it happened this morning. Um, to my knowledge, there's been no injuries. The pilot is fine. Um, but, uh, the plane took off from Ocean Springs Airport and crashed about one mile from the airport. So it wasn't like they had problems right whenever they took off, um, realized there was an issue and then safely landed for the most part, um, in the field. But I mean, if you look at the photo on the website, it looks like the body of the plane is still intact, but the plane, like the wings and everything, those look pretty much demolished. Yeah. So, uh, fortunately, nobody has had any injuries at this time, but yeah, this is pretty crazy. I'm glad it, that they made it out okay. It also looks, uh, being a, a pilot and flying a plane that had retractable landing gear, I noticed that the nose gear. Is collapsed because mm-hmm. the the plane settled nose down with the tail up in the air. So I mean, but that would have been something the pilot would have done when they knew that they were going to have to land in a field there. Mm-hmm. And of course, you'd keep the gear up as long as you could, retracted to just maintain altitude and get you a little more distance because the gear would slow you down. But yeah, I'm glad that they're okay, and you can see there the. You're right. The fuselage, the cockpit is intact, but the wings are mangled up and have uh, separated from the fuselage. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll learn more about what happened. But fortunate that they found – and that's what you're taught to do as an old pilot. That's what they teach you to do is find an open space. You can set that thing down in, and the pilot obviously saw the big open field there and felt like they could get the plane down on that. Yeah, and nobody was out there, I guess, because, you oh, know, man. summer break and everything. So if there was a time to have to use the field, I guess now is the best time to do so. Yeah, so. that's and that's what you're taught. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, through my many hours of learning how to fly an airplane, typically what the instructor would do is while you were just putting along, 
doing some task that had been assigned to you by the instructor in the airplane. All of a sudden, my instructor was uh, was Katie Brown. Was her name? Was a great female uh, aviator. And uh, Katie would, uh, when I was looking at, out the window the other way, push that that um, throttle all the way mm-hmm. in, simulating an engine. Out. Okay, you just lost your engine. What are you going to do? And there's a whole mm-hmm. series of procedures you go through. And so. Learning how to fly an airplane is learning and practicing things you hope never happen. Mm-hmm. About 99% of the time, flying an airplane is easy. But mm-hmm. this pilot obviously um, executed those procedures uh, perfectly and saved his life. And mm-hmm. if he had passengers on board, I'm not sure. But that, uh, that's good. So appreciate that update. What mm-hmm. an interesting photo that is as well there that just shows the, perfectly what uh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. What else is going on? It's going to be hot, right, across the Magnolia State. Oh, yeah. I mean, this week. we have already had severe weather in the previous weeks. Um, I'm sure everybody across Mississippi has already had some kind of dose of it. I know I did. Uh, one week ago, get this, um, a tree branch fell on my car at 520 in the morning. So yeah. I know that I had my fair share of uh, some severe weather damage, but um, over 150,000 Mississippians lost power um this was over the course of like yeah an entire week where you know everybody had at least like what five storms or something like that that yeah. ended up being really severe um i think that jackson and jasper counties were the ones that got hit hardest um you can see some really interesting photos specifically in moss point they put out a lot of photos um of the high school too the high school gym got really really impacted a lot of damage um but fortunately, you know, there weren't too many, you know, uh, injuries. There were some. Um, unfortunately, it was 25 people were injured. I think 18 were hospitalized and one fatality. Um, that was a resident in uh, Loon, I believe. So, yep. yeah, thankfully, nobody else was injured over the you know whole entire week of really bad weather. But um, I know everybody's been on top of it. There were a couple of tornadoes. One of them was an EF3 tornado in Jasper County. So that ended up being really rough on all the yeah. residents there. But thankfully, we've had a pretty nice week so far. We have. Bizarre weather last week, though, uh-huh. for sure. All right, yeah. the Jackson water hearing. What's going on there? Okay, so uh, this all started last week. Um, I think I, it was Wednesday. Uh, Lamumba he had a press conference where he was announcing that um, expecting mothers and mothers that had children like five and under, they were going to be able to receive a free water filter. Um, and that was from okay. United Healthcare. They donated $100,000 so that filters could be sent out. And he said that the main reason was that, you know, he wanted the people who are most vulnerable to, you know, water issues and such um, to be protected and, and, you know, have, you know, safe health and everything um, and healthy babies. And he said, uh, what better way than to give out a free water filter and build the confidence of residents in Jackson in hmm. their own water? Hmm. Um, and uh, shortly after that, U.S. District Court Judge Henry Wingate, um, he sent out a calling for both Lumumba and the interim third-party manager over Jackson's water, Ted Hennepin, um, called for them both to be at a court hearing uh, one week later to discuss is Jackson's water safe to drink? Is it, I mean, if people need to have water filters, if if this is going to impact people's health, like, is it safe to drink? Is it safe right now? Does it 
hold up to you know all the regulations yeah. and uh so they came in on wednesday um and they had to talk about it and uh, uh, Lamumba said, you know, I've never said that um, the water was unsafe to drink. I just said that I wanted people to feel more confident that their water is safe. And what better way to do that and reduce, reduce the cost of buying a bunch of bottled water every single month, you know, than to have a water filter. And uh, Ted Hennepin said, well, these water filters, they cost 15 or $50 to replace. Every four months, you got to pay $50 to, re- to replace that. And you're just adding another expense uh, to these people. It might have been good intentions, but you're worrying people. You know, it might have worried people. Um, and, you know, even though they get, they get two filters, like, they're still going to have to pay money to replace them. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so Hennepin, in the end, said, yes, Jackson's water is safe to drink. Uh, Lumumba said, you know, there, uh, there have been issues with lead being found in right. the water. Um and that the Mississippi Department of Health has consistently recommended that vulnerable citizens in Jackson drink filtered water because of the presence of the lead in the past. Hmm. Just to make sure. Um, but at this time, Jackson water is safe to drink, and Ted Hennepin is in charge of making right. sure it, it is that way. I bet we hear more on this. Mm-hmm. This isn't going away. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The hospitals in the state of Mississippi did not get uh, too favorable a rating from the Commonwealth Fund that mm-hmm. um, that does that. They, they're a nonpartisan group that um, there's a health care foundation as part of the Commonwealth Fund, and they have, they have scored hospitals in states, in the 50 states, and Washington, D.C., on a number of categories, and Mississippi came in as 51st. Mm-hmm. What do you know about that? Well, uh, I know we had uh, the state uh, health officer, Dr. Dan Edney, on this week, and he said a lot of uh, things about the state's current situation with the hospitals. Um, Just a couple months ago, I think it was late April, um, the uh, Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform said that 27 hospitals in Mississippi are at risk of closure, with 20 of them risk of immediate closure actually um but in the areas that are the worst uh are the delta and southwest mississippi it seems like natchez and macomb are okay but there are a lot of uh hospitals that are on the verge of uh not being able to serve their own residents anymore um and so even greenwood lafleur that one's a pretty big hospital about 80 percent of care is going uncompensated right now and so it's a really difficult time and a lot of officials have said you know it wouldn't be the you know complete solve of the problem to to expand medicaid but it would be something that would really help substantially keep hospitals in the state um open so i know a lot of people who are professionals in the field think so yeah it's just a big old problem that I think uh, our government is probably going to have to address. And there's going to be people in the legislature that, that are going to call for some sort of action. What that might be, I don't know. But uh, this isn't going away either. I don't think so. Yeah. And we'll be covering that a lot more and talking about it. Alyssa, always a pleasure uh, of you coming in on middays and giving us a great update. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You got it. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Shine 
stop for you to see what your life can truly be. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. That'll get you going there. What's that, about 75, 6? Slow ride? Seems like. 75. I had it. I knew it was in high school. Yamaha. The album Fool for the City. I remember it. We need to play that one. That's a good one, too. They get you all fired up. So, uh, back in high school, I saved my money. I think I told you I worked at, uh, at the bowling alleys here. And I also used to. Okay, I used to gamble bowling when I was a teenager. Um, and win some money. Also could play the tank game. Remember that? The tank video game? Oh, yeah. Back when video games, you had to go to like a bowling alley or was a video game. Battle arcade. zone? Yeah, that was another like one. That. Yeah. But the, but the tank game was literally called tank. Yeah. And you had two levers. To, very to, simplified graphics. Exactly. Very simplified. Yeah. Well, all that fancy stuff wasn't available then. And it had the... The audio. Mm. <laughs> Had to maneuver around the rocks. That's right. It was rocks and a maze and all that sort of stuff. And I, I got to be pretty good at that. And so <laughs> literally we'd close the place down, and I'd be on one of the tanks, and, and somebody else would be on another that was pretty good at it, too. And the reason we got good is because we worked there. We could open the machine up and just play it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to put a quarter in to play it. But... Uh, the older guys that just like to drink and gamble, right? They they part into two different teams and bet across who was going <laughs> to win and money in their hands. I mean, it looked like the old days, you know. So uh, playing the tank game, uh, but I bought with my winnings from that. I bought a Yamaha receiver. That's a popular brand of receivers now. They had just been introduced back then. I remember had the silver front. Uh, panel, kind of cool, and uh, had KLH speakers, KLH. I don't even know if they're still around making speakers. And the ones I had were about two and a half feet high, I guess, but had the separation, had a uh, subwoofer, not a subwoofer, a woofer, a mid-range, and a tweeter in the same cabinet. You see that, KLH? KLH is still in business, and... Uh if you enjoy the wood grain retro look, that seems to be all they make. Yeah, and that's what it was. And they were two and a half, three feet high speakers, maybe a foot wide, with a grill on the front of them. They were pretty high quality. And that that song made me think of it because that was one of the first albums I bought. It would exercise the audio pretty well on that Yamaha receiver and had a. Uh, I think I a, bet they weren't five hundred dollars a pop back then. No. Maybe for the pair, maybe. <laughs> I want to say the receiver was about two hundred, 
they really haven't gone up that much if you consider the functionality and the power of a receiver today versus that era. They're, they really haven't increased that much because it's a lot of just electronic circuitry in those guys. But yeah, had that, and I want to say maybe a BIC turntable kind of comes to mind, something like that. I think I got that right. You see that? BIC? Yeah. Yeah, I had a turn. The BSC-960? There you go. I don't remember. And then you would always replace in the in the tone arm, I think it's what it's called, you would replace the stylus. There was a company, I don't remember their name, but that they specialized in making high-quality stylus. So you'd throw away the one that came with it <laughs> and buy the aftermarket product. Now, I can't remember the name of the company that made the stylus, uh, but that was a big deal. You Back know. when hi-fi was the buzzword, not that's AI. Right. You, exactly right. But that song by Foghat was pretty good on that deal. That and Roundabout used to play that a lot, too, back in those days. To the chagrin of my parents, of course. Turn that thing down. <laughs> We're back, though, in the Element Well studio. We're having some fun, just digressing a bit. We got elections coming up in August primary elections, the general, of course, in November. And we were just discussing the lieutenant governor's race because it it clearly is the most competitive at statewide level from a primary perspective. And so I've been a bit disappointed that the candidates, uh, the the two candidates there at the the top, have have not really spoken a lot about their their plans should they be elected what what's your vision so i give props to uh chris mcdaniel in that he he did release some information concerning his uh, his plan should he be elected and we went through that but i do i guess it's fair to say i i have some some questions, not concerns, but more questions about that. And I'd love to see them debate as a result, but I don't think that's going to happen. I have requested of the lieutenant governor to uh, participate, engage in a debate. I've, I've offered to moderate, but um, thus far that request has, uh, has not been affirmed. So I don't know that that's going to happen. And that's not unusual, honestly, for an incumbent to um, just stay away from the debate stage. It's not unusual. So I, I wouldn't say it's unique to him. I, I do think there would be value. I, I definitely believe that the vast majority of voters in our state would love to see such a debate. So, again... With respect to the fiscal conservatism issue, it's something that Mr. McDaniel has uh, promoted as part of his plan. Again, it's the eliminating the income tax and the grocery tax. I, I can't make those numbers work. And for someone who can, if, you, if that's what you're proposing, I should say, then we'd like to see a working model. I'd love to see a pro forma of the state of Mississippi's budget before elimination of the income tax and sales tax on groceries and after. What does that look like? 
keeping in mind that the state of Mississippi, by law, is required to balance the budget. You can't spend more than you take in. So eliminating the income tax means you're eliminating 32% of revenue. Now, as we discussed, we, we are experiencing a surplus of about $1.2 billion. Eliminating the income tax means uh, we would lose, presumably lose, if everything stays the same, 2.1. So you got you got um, about 900, 800 to 900 million of spending that you'd have to reduce. You'd have to cut. And then if you look at the spending pie in Mississippi, about half of it goes, a little more than half, to education. And okay, so do you want to cut that? And if so, how, where, specifically what? And I'm not saying don't or can't. I'm just asking for specifics because I think that's important. And then if uh, let's let's go beyond education to the next uh, big ticket item in the budget, and that's Medicaid. So if you look at where we spend our money, uh, a big chunk of that goes to Medicaid. That, that's after education. It's the number two item uh, in our spending pie. Okay, so, and that's with us only, us being the state, only paying 22, 24% roughly of the program. And the federal government picking up the rest because of our state having the lowest income, per capita income, in the country, we get the highest amount of federal dollars from the federal government to fund Medicaid. That's just a fact, and that's a bunch. So uh, do you want to cut that? And if so, specifically how? You know, where? It's um, That's a big chunk of it. In fact, it's 19, almost 20 percent of our total budget. It's about 900 to a billion dollars to the state, but it's six billion coming from the federal government. The amount of money we get from the federal government just to fund Medicaid equals our entire general fund budget. So and then when you start cutting the state's funding of Medicaid, you're subject to losing federal dollars to fund Medicaid. So that gets kind of kind of kind of difficult, kind of challenging. Then the next item is of course our debt service. That's interest we pay in principal uh, on the money we've borrowed and then behind that's corrections. So do you want to cut corrections? What do you want to cut out of corrections? Headcount? Salaries? Facilities? And all the rest of it adds up to about 15% of government. It's not, it's not that much. This is just the math. I'm just discussing the math. This is important. Coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. So I'm just looking once again, Rhino, at the um, the 2023 fiscal year in Mississippi, looking at how the money is appropriated across the various categories. And, yeah, education, 52.63%. Social welfare, which is really primarily Medicaid, 17.9%. Let's call it 18 uh, so you're at seventy one percent there. Then corrections five point four. Let's just call it in uh, five point four eight and uh, round it up. Call it six. Probably is. So we got. Where are we there? Seventy six percent of the budget, and then the debt service coming in at roughly eight. So eighty four percent. Eighty four percent of our budget: education, Medicaid, corrections, debt. All the rest of government comes in at 16%. Not surprising. So if the the plan is and the proposal is to cut spending, you see where you have the most opportunity to cut, and education would be first. Well, we just, we just gave big teacher pay raises, so we just increased spending on education. And the vast majority of education expense is pay to teachers. I know there's a lot of folks that would like to see schools consolidate as a way to eliminate duplicative expenses, and I think there's opportunity to do that. It's very politically unpopular, and you don't hear anybody on the campaign trail talking about it. Have you heard a single candidate talk about that, either running for House, Senate, or statewide office? I haven't. Uh, And then, of course, the ballot initiative process is something that I've made a pledge, commitment to the audience. We'd ask every lawmaker that comes in the studio to share with us their position on that, as we did with Representative Bounds yesterday. I do think it's true. I don't think, and I know, I've, I've talked to the lieutenant governor about that before. It's not that he's just abjectly opposed, no way, no how, to the ballot initiative process, but he supports one that would have a higher signature threshold. And I've simply opined that I believe if we had a ballot, a citizen-initiated ballot measure process reinstated in the state, we're without one presently due to a Supreme Court ruling, you've made the point, and I agree with you, that having a higher signature threshold doesn't really achieve what the goal of that is. In fact, it's just the opposite, that it pretty much relegates the process to only the the well-funded, well-organized, that are accustomed to orchestrating ballot initiatives. Because a lot of states have them. I, I, I track this stuff on Ballotpedia. It's shocking to me how many there are across the country. None in Mississippi because we don't have a process. But if you look at it, they're typically coordinated by folks that have money and organizations, systems in place to uh, get a ballot. Uh, pardon me, a measure on the ballot, because there's a lot of work involved in that. Collecting signatures, promoting the idea, etc. Um, and But I caution that Okay, be careful what you wish for, as the saying goes. I believe there's three things that would would pass rather readily. Should we reinstate the ballot 
measure process, and that's that is uh, recreational cannabis easing the restrictions on abortion to some extent in the state, and of course Medicaid expansion. I believe that would happen. So there's kind of a, a double-edged sword there situation. Um, and then as far as religious freedom and prayer, uh, I don't have a problem with prayer in school. What prayer, though? What should be the content of that prayer? Should it be a prayer that uh, references Christian ideals? Because not everybody in the schools are Christian. What about Jewish students? What about Muslim students, Hindu students, atheists, etc.? Now, they don't have to participate. They should not be compelled to participate. But it's that's a tough one, in my view. I think it possibly could result in more conflict, more consternation, more issues... Um, I, re- I really wish we'd get back to focusing on how do we get off the bottom in household income and median income because the issues with our hospitals, especially in the impoverished areas, as Alyssa just informed us in this recent survey, that's 100% a function of poverty. Same thing Dr. Dan Edney from Department of Health said uh, the other day as well. I totally agree with him. But we're taking a break. We're coming back. With the folks from the Mississippi Department of Education, stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of middays, rocking right into the afternoon portion of the program on this Friday, y'all. Joining us now in the Element Well Studios, Dr. Tanette Smith, Mississippi Department of Education Executive Director of Elementary Education and Reading, and Kristen Wynn, MDE State Literacy Director. Ladies, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. So I've been seeing lots of good news about the progress made in the great state of Mississippi with respect to reading and comprehension and uh, the scores there, the progress there made in K-12, through and, of course, literacy, a uh, big focus, a big part of that. We even got recognized, I talked about it on the program, in the New York Times, said Mississippi was a model yes. for the rest of the state. And the governor, of course, has been, been uh, boasting about that a bit as well, so... Uh, start with you, uh, Tanette. What's happening here? What's the what's the secret sauce? Secret sauce um, for our success? Yeah, a lot of hard work. Yeah, sure. It's a lot of hard work by a lot of different people. It's a combination of resources of of um, combining our resources and making sure that we are attacking the issue of uh, literacy um, with a multi pronged attack. Um, we use our literacy coaches. We use early childhood coaches, early childhood supports. We use intervention supports. Um, uh, we 
collaborate within the office of our chief academic office. And so we work with our office of special education, our office of digital learning, multiple offices working together to ensure that our students have access to high quality teachers um, and high quality instructional material. Yeah, so um, just again, referencing this New York Times Mm -hmm. article, uh, the the individual who did the research here that was really the input for the article came to Mississippi, Mm -hmm. went to the classrooms, went to uh, a classroom in Jackson, I believe, Mm -hmm. and said that uh, he caught the students reading a book, The Vegetables We Eat, and was rather astonished at uh, the way in which the the kids were able to read aloud and actually debate what vegetables are was right. was uh, shocked at how fluent they were and how um, how just competent they were in reading this material and that's just fantastic and actually refer to some of the words they pronounced vegetables which is not an easy word to pronounce right. when you're when you're that age eggplant mm-hmm. certainly not a common part. Mm-hmm. Of the of the uh, the vernacular at that age, <laughs> yes. I mean that's impressive. It, it is impressive, um, but again, we didn't just start this. It didn't just start here. We started in 2013, and in 2013, we made a concerted effort um, to make sure that we were uh, layering in our supports. Um, and because in 2013, we had the implementation of the Literacy Based Promotion Act, right? Yeah. Multi-pronged attack, not just um, a third-grade gate, as people tend to say, the third-grade yeah. reading score, third-grade reading test. It also had in there that we had to work with parents. We had to hire literacy coaches. Um, we went an extra mile. We went gave a little bit of lanyap, right? We wanted to make sure that we not only worked with parents and, and helped our teachers, we wanted to make sure that we were all speaking the same language. And so we identified a uh, science of reading as a method um, of helping teachers become more competent in teaching kiddos how to read. Sure. So, uh, Kristen, tell us about uh, your organization the, uh, serving as the state literacy director. What does that entail exactly? So um, my role as a state literacy director, I help with the implementation and support um, with carrying out the Literacy-Based Promotion Act. As Dr. Smith mentioned, that act has several different parts. One includes um, students have to be screened three times a year starting in kindergarten, which if you were in a classroom or mentioned uh, about a classroom and students were able to read those very difficult words at an early age is because they've been screened starting in kindergarten to identify any reading deficiencies that they may have. And then the law also requires that they're given a diagnostic assessment and other components. Um, I also have a team of literacy coaches and we go out in schools and we work in the lowest performance schools in Mississippi really working side by side with teachers and building their knowledge of how students learn to read. And so we also are responsible for the professional development provided to teachers and leaders across the state of Mississippi to ensure they really understand the scientifically based research around the science 
of how students learn to read, why some students have difficulties with reading and writing, and then how we assess and teach students. So that's what the science is all about. About, um, and so I work in the role of making sure those all of those multiple moving parts are pushed out in the most efficient and effective way to teachers and leaders in our state. Okay, so um, has some of this just evolved over the last few years? These new analytics and assessment techniques. Is, is that relatively new, or has that been around and we're just starting to focus on it? It's been around for a long time. Uh, like Dr. Smith said, we started to take the shift in 2013. Um, if you just kind of think back to when you learned to read or when I learned to read in school, we learned from a whole word approach. Like okay. we were looking at whole words and lots of sight words, and that kind of saturated our state for a whole a long time, like our country. Okay. But that was not the best way to teach students how to read because when you're starting to look at how things become more complex with reading, you have to be able to attack words in smaller parts and in meaningful parts. So we shifted around that time with the components of the law to really focusing on what is the science telling us? What is it specifically that we need to do at each grade level to ensure students have the foundational skills that they need to be able to be skilled readers and to be able to comprehend complex texts later on in life or late in the later grades? So, Dr. Smith, is this kind of giving rise to uh, new instructional techniques and methodologies? It, it's these are the instructional techniques and methodologies have been around for years. Okay. But it's given rise to us focusing more um, in depth and narrowing our focus. And so no longer are we using some strategies that have been proven or disproven, right? Um, we are now using strategies that are balanced in, in its approach um, and um, that are grounded in research. You know, um, the science of reading is, is grounded in, in uh, a broad plethora of research articles yeah. as well as um, it's continuing to grow. So, um, like Ms. Wynn said, we, you know, we don't stop on our laurels. We don't stop where we are. We continue to go out and we, we continue to research and find additional ways to support teachers as well as students. So, no, it's, it's, it's not new. Okay. But you're maybe focusing on it more, yeah. right? Yeah. And and do the teachers, um, Kristen, they do they embrace this? Yes. So because you said that reluctantly, I, you know, I, not really, <laughs> but kind of. No, they do because I think a lot of light bulbs go off in okay. the training because okay. for so long, things that as teachers, when we all went through our prep programs, we should have received that we didn't. Okay. And so mm-hmm. when you get in the classroom and you have a student in front of you that may be having some reading difficulties and you've tried all of the methods mm-hmm. that you may have been taught in your prep program or the curriculum that's placed in front of you and it doesn't work, then you're kind of stuck. Well, with the training that we have provided to over 20,000 teachers across the state, they really learn, well, why do, why do kids or why do some students have these difficulties? Like what's going on in the brain? Because uh, the science is grounded in neuroscience. Hmm. Um, how, how does the brain work when we read? What about students with dyslexia? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, how, how does it affect their reading? You know, what parts do they need? What, what do we need to really dive into when it comes 
to the five components of reading and how we've been teaching it, they walk away feeling better and more, um, I said, more prepared, I would say. But um, they also walk away saying, I should have learned this in college. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so are you guys talking to the colleges about changing? Oh, the absolutely. So we partner with them. And um, initially, when we had the trainings, um, the, our colleges and university professors, they were a part of the um, training as well. Okay. They have their own separate cohorts. Um, we also have kind of shifted some of the te- um, content that they um, utilize within their teacher prep programs in their early literacy one courses and their early literacy two courses. Plus, we also have a foundations of reading assessment that our pre-service teachers have to take leaving those universities. Gotcha. Mm. So, I'm glad to yeah. hear because it, it's so important that the colleges get feedback from the field so they can make adjustments and enhancements to their programs to make sure they're training folks, no matter what the profession is. Teaching is no exception to that. Training folks to do what we need out in the field, out Absolutely. in the real world. Definitely. Ladies, appreciate you guys coming on. Congratulations on Thank all you. your efforts there. Thank you for that and the success here in the state of Mississippi. I know this will uh, bear fruit in the future. As our kids get older, it's important that they get through this process while they're in and get proficient while they're at this level. Thanks. We interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. Thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate the ladies from the Department of Education for, for coming in and talking about the literacy program and the progress made there in the state of Mississippi. It is something to be proud of. The key is many of these children will likely seek a college education in the state. And then they'll get out and will have a hard time finding a job that suits them based on the course of study. That's the big problem we have. So how do you fix that? Got to bring industry into the state that hires those kind of people. I'm waiting to hear from candidates on how they expect to do that, intend to do that, and don't say, well, we're going to cut the income tax, because I'm telling you, that's way down the list. I'm for it. Don't get me wrong. I made that clear. But don't expect it. Hey, if we cut the income tax, fortune companies are moving in. Wrong. Not happening. It's got to be something more than that. We've got to put our heads together and figure out what the sales pitch is. And then we've got to work together diligently, government, private sector, economic developers, to court and sell companies, entrepreneurs, on starting up businesses here or expanding in here. I, I hear the governor talking about it on a regular basis. I think he gets it. I don't hear much elsewhere, honestly, in the political realm. Here's the counter to your points, Gerard, and they are good points as the devil is in the details that are immune to basic campaign rhetoric. As lieutenant governor, I won't allow or direct conservative legislation. I assume this is what 
Chris McDaniel said, right, Thomas? Dying committee like Delbert and his loyal committee chairs, I will make sure it gets to the floor for a vote. If individual legislators oppose it, their constituents can persuade them to vote conservative, remove them in the next election. I will not be the sole reason conservative legislation dies in the Senate like Delbert. Give me an example. I'm not saying you're wrong. Give me an example. That's just high-level platitude rhetoric. Give me an example. Can you give me any, Rhino? Not anything that Dobert single-handedly stopped, no. I mean, if we're talking about tax reform, because that seems to get the ballot measure, okay, fair enough. I do think, Still wasn't one man stopping no, it. definitely not. Um, I, I do think, I don't, I don't think, I, I'm quite confident in conversations with the lieutenant governor. He opposed full elimination of the income tax. He's not alone in that respect in the Senate. He opposed the ballot initiative without a higher signature threshold. No doubt about it. He supported, this is one distinction between the two candidates. Again, I'm just offering objective analysis here. He did support the bill that restricts the sale of new vehicles in the state of Mississippi to only outlets that are retail outlets that are owned by third parties other than the manufacturer. I completely oppose that bill, believe it's the most anti-free market legislation ever passed in the state of Mississippi that ultimately will not survive. It'll stay in place, but the market on a much broader scale than the teeny tiny state of Mississippi will correct that error, in my view. I don't hear much from the other candidates, honestly. I don't hear much from candidates for House or Senate. Talk about that. I don't hear anything. I can tell you this, guys. You want to know where money is, where taxpayers are getting fleeced? And I've said this before. It's in the no-bid personal services statutes at the county and municipal levels in particular when contracts are let and authorized in the bodies that Manage uh, those entities, states, uh, pardon me, counties and cities. No bids for certain services. No bid. We're getting fleeced. We have been for years. And then we have, we have certain public sector entities that give preferential treatment in procurement to vendors based on certain status, minority status. City of Jackson has employed such policies for as long as I can remember. I've been crusading against that for as long as I can remember, honestly. And they go. They continue on. You want to know why the water's messed up, the billing system's messed up, and the host of other problems in the city of Jackson? You can hang a lot of it on that because that process breeds corruption in procurement. So does the no-bid personal services statutes. Yet to see a candidate say anything about that. Now, I am aware that there has been, at least in the Senate legislation, to prohibit contracting in in the public sector where preferential treatment would be given, consideration would be given, based on this minority status stuff. And it has not passed. I am aware of that. But if you want to get back to free market principles, that to me flies in the face of free markets. 
just like the vehicle bill. And look, my friends in the Senate know where I stand on that. There's no secret in the House, too. I don't care. I don't, I'm not backing down from that position. I think it's the right position. I'd uh, like to see candidates talk about that. And then we have the issue of PERS. When's the last time? I, and I know I'm beating a horse to death. I'm just bringing it up again. So, Thomas, can you tell me what conservative legislation has been authored in the Senate to address PERS? What, what would you say would be the conservative approach to addressing PERS? It's not easy. Because every public sector entity in the state of Mississippi is going to incur a 5% increase on their payroll, effective July 1, 2024, just to cover the new PERS contribution, the increased PERS contribution. The, the worker's not getting any more pay. That's just going to the PERS fund to keep the attempt, at least, to achieve some degree of financial stability. Um. So, the income tax elimination the bill that died in committee is a result, Thomas, of lack of sufficient support in the Senate, not the lieutenant governor, in, exclusively, I should say. That's what I'm saying. Um, no, I think, so you're implying that the lieutenant governor can't get a bill out of committee. I think he would have struggled getting such a bill out of committee. Yes, I do. And again, I take you back to the original bill that that many Mississippians objected to, which increased sales taxes, except it did decrease the grocery tax a little bit. But in a way to get full repeal of the income tax on a very short-term basis, and man, all hell broke loose. You remember it, Rhino, and the cows came back with some, um, some modifications to that, and then couldn't get it through, and what we ended up with was uh, some sort of moderate reform, is what I would call it. So Thomas says he wants to end PERS for future employees. Okay. So if you end PERS for future employees, then, Thomas, does that mean they would not contribute to PERS? Because if that's the case, it crashes way sooner, so that's not a solution. That is not a solution. Or would you have them contribute to the plan but not be eligible to participate in the benefits? So you haven't done the math. <laughs> That's a simple math problem. Tyler says in Corinth, I have a child that struggles. This is back on the literacy subject with reading. He failed his third reading gate the first time he took it. He was successful the second time. What resources are there for parents to help us with teaching at home? We aren't trained educators, but we have a sincere desire to do our part at home to improve his competency. Uh, Tyler, I would I would suggest maybe calling into the Department of Ed or maybe just talking to your teacher. I'm a little surprised that that the schools and the districts haven't sort of disseminated information to parents that would be useful at home. I just went down a little mini rabbit hole on this. And okay. the, the three things I found that seem to be almost universal advice, no matter where you get it from, is step one, to read with your child daily and make it a routine. Step two is to turn it into a game. Get the the magnetic letters or the little words that you can make sentences out of that you can put on the fridge so that it's a daily word game. And you can change it up every day or however often you want to. And then three, to find age-appropriate 
reading material on topics they enjoy. And I, I found that one in a couple different places, and multiple places pointed to Nat Geo Kids hmm. as having tons of games and books on all kind of topics. So that might be something to check out in that National Geographic Kids. See if there's something on there that they're interested in and go down that avenue. Appreciate the question, though, Tyler. And um, and thank you, Rhino, for sharing that information. And, man, all the best. Uh, I want your child to succeed. Absolutely. I want all children to succeed. And so I, I applaud the efforts at the Department of Ed and a lot of that, as you guys know, stems from the home. It's got to start at the home. And I applaud you, Tyler, for wanting to take action at home and get involved. We're coming right back. Half an hour left on Middays. FM. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines. Breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Jim in the Delta asked, are there any states that have defined benefit plans like PERS that have figured out a way to solidify the plan in a reasonable way? They're, they're, they're all struggling. There are various uh, varying degrees of unfunded liability risk. Uh, I think last I checked, it's like Illinois, New Jersey, top of that list. Uh, and But some are better off than others. It's just all a function of the structure of the plan, honestly, and just the number of workers ratio to the number of beneficiaries. There's a lot of different factors that go into it, but ultimately, uh, as long as we continue to reduce the size of the workforce in state governments, Unless we increase the contribution rate or the amount being paid in, create new tiers, which would be different contribution rates, different benefit plans, or reduce benefits presently being paid, which is incredibly unpopular and I wouldn't support, then, yeah, they're all in trouble. And it's just a function of an aging population, people living longer, and just reaching a point of sort of plateau stability with respect to public sector workforces, and a lot of people retiring out from the days when we had larger workforces. And those, those two dynamics contribute to and really are the root cause of the financial instability. Let's see here. This is uh, on the ceasefire text line. When there's a lot of stuff here. When are when are here? When are here? Hmm. When I hear, maybe is what they meant to say. Chris McDaniel speaking of improving education in our state. He appears to hammer on the charter school idea. I do support charter schools. However, when you live in a very rural area as I do, school selection is limited. So I'm not sure that simply sho- shoving charter schools down our throat is going to benefit the children. In my community, we have a private school that is maximum capacity, cannot accept any more children. And then, of course, we have the public school in our area that is not as good as it could be. But why don't we focus on improving what we have rather than going with an entirely different approach? We should be doing both, honestly. I I hear you. And 
Um, full disclosure, I've shared before that I've worked um, and, and been honored to serve as the chairman of the board of Empower, was around with the origination of that organization, Empower Mississippi, back in 2014. And in fact, I'll share this, Rhino, I had, I had been down to Hattiesburg, and it was the night of the primary, I want to say that was in June, for the U.S. Senate. And Senator Chris McDaniel, who during the Senate race I supported. And I went to Hattiesburg at the big convention center there, you know, uh, on the north side of the town as you come through 49 there. It's where they had the event that night. The election returns, and it was it was then that uh, on the way back we rode together. I my friend Russ Latino Grant Callen and Grant shared with me this idea he had about forming this new organization and asked me if I'd be interested in chairing it. That's how I got involved, honestly, with Empower. And I point that out because Empower has been the state's leading advocate by far for charter schools, school choice, education, freedom, and it, and it's pushed and advocated for the, the policies that we got, such as the dyslexia scholarship accounts and special needs accounts, uh, education accounts, and, of course, charter schools. We have a charter school authorizer board. It did not authorize any new schools last year. That's an issue. And what this this uh, member of our audience says is right. It's not a panacea. It's not a... It's not a solution to every situation, there's no doubt. And it is a more difficult nut to crack in rural areas. Almost everything is. That's just a fact. When you've got less population density and less less money, fewer financial assets in those areas, it's just harder to make anything work. And our state has to deal with that. We've got a small population that is widely dispersed across a a fairly big geographic area. So if you look, for example, Rhino, at Wyoming, I had an office up there. And Wyoming has a population of what, like 600,000 or so. It's very small. You're shaking your head. That that seems to be the number that comes to mind, 600,000. Look it up. But Wyoming is a state that's probably close to Mississippi in just size, area size. Probably not far. But if you look at where the population resides in Wyoming, they're like all in the same area. You know, it's just vast regions of the state where there's nobody. And you know who lives there? Rich people that want to be where there's nobody. <laughs> and it's different than our state, which has its origins as, a, as an agricultural state. And, and that really... It's, it's difficult to make the economics work back in the days when the Delta really ruled the state from an economic perspective because that's where all the agriculture was. But that's changed. That that industry has evolved and changed and takes fewer people. It's been highly automated and continues along that road. Keep the cost down. Higher yields, lower costs. I'd say that's a pretty good deal. And that's what's been happening in the agriculture industry really since the 30s, when about a third of our population was in agriculture. is less than 3% now. Yet we produce way more than we did in the 30s. In fact, we struggled to feed our people when we had about a third as many. But the fact that we're dispersed, it, it does complicate things. It just does. I don't know what the 
necessary solution to that is. I'm just pointing that out as a challenge. Did not, uh, Rusty says, did not PERS have some poor investment return? It, it did. Um, heck, all retirement plans struggle. They pretty much go the route the market goes. When the market experiences a good, good year, well, then the uh, retirement plans do. And it just depends on how their assets are allocated. Uh, and, you know, they're somewhat limited on how they can invest, and, and they have to be careful on, on the, the allocation of their capital to low-risk investments that also have low returns, such as U.S. Treasuries and corporate-grade bonds, to equities, which have typically higher returns but are more risky. They try to balance that out, uh, the folks that run the investment portfolio. But the amount of money there is minimal, honestly. Uh, rusty relative to just the pressure on the system uh, as people retire and become eligible and draw benefits relative to, to the amount of people working in government and paying in. Yeah, I was trying to find more current data. The most recent data I can find from the Federal Reserve is 2020. Okay. But uh, they've got it broken down by state as a funding ratio of the pension plan's assets as a percentage of liabilities. Okay. And the number one best functioning state in the union is Wisconsin. Huh, interesting. They've got 149 billion in assets and 167 billion in liabilities coming to 89%. Hmm. Compare that to Mississippi who has 33.7 billion in assets and 75 billion in liabilities putting our percentage at 45%. Yeah. Okay. Makes total sense. The bottom states are New Jersey with $86 billion in assets and $275 billion in liabilities, putting their assets to liabilities proportion at 31%. Interesting. And Illinois has $200 billion in assets and $591 billion in liabilities for a percentage of 35%. The worst in the country. They're the worst in the country. And a lot of that's because, and so there's, you got to consider this. There's multiple factors that enter into this. That's that even would, would uh, sort of produce those sorts of ratios. How much are you paying in? How much are you paying out? What I mean by that is, what's the contribution rate for the employee and the employer? What is, uh, what are the benefit plans for uh, retirees? Uh, I mean, the investment portfolio and the returns there. Yeah, that has some to do with it, but not like the structure of the benefit plans relative to the contribution rates, and then it's the ratio of workers to beneficiaries. Some states just are just more bloated. I don't know about Wisconsin, but I did look up. This is kind of interesting, and I don't know what sort of benefits uh, are paid in Wisconsin, but from a contribution perspective, both the employee-employer pay 6.8% for a total, uh, that's interesting, right, of 13.6%, whereas in Mississippi, guys, the employee pays nine, and the employer pays seventeen and a half, going to twenty-two and a half. So our contributions into the fund from the combined employer-employee in Mississippi almost triple what they are, even though we're not as solvent as they are. That's interesting. But again, I hadn't looked at the benefits. Our benefits may be more generous in Mississippi than Wisconsin. So that this is the complicated. Dynamics of public employees' retirement systems, defined benefit plans, 
that I'd like to see somebody running for public office at the state level or or the legislature tell us what their plan is because it ain't going away. We're coming right back with a final segment on this Friday, y'all, as Rhino says. After this, these messages, stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. Ray from Far says they should take away the supplemental employment uh, retirement plan that the legislators participate in. But that's, that doesn't fix PERS, though, Ray. They pay into that as well. And it's it's minor. I mean, it's just nothing. Now, if you just don't want them to have that benefit, okay, well, then I would recommend you talk to your legislators about authoring legislation that would just kill the plan. But it's just minimal. I mean, it's just not a major problem at all. Please quit talking about PERS. You make me nervous. I hear you, and I assume then you're probably either invested in it as a worker that uh, maybe is is counting on that when you retire, or perhaps you're retired now and receive benefits. And I'm not trying to make anybody nervous, but it is important that we all acknowledge and accept and recognize the facts. And anything I'm saying here is certainly subject for somebody to fact check. Let me know. My data comes from the official government publications. Rhino, you've dug into it as well. I think gotten you interested in it as well. My experience, by the way, with public employees' retirement systems goes back to 1981 when I worked uh, as a principal architect on a project to design and implement the first automated state-level public pension system in the country, and that was in the state of Louisiana. And that's only because... They were flush with money from the oil and gas industry, and they um, they saw the need to fully automate the retirement system. Before that, it was ridiculously manual, except for the generation of the checks, and it was just a check-writing tool. It wasn't really a, a comprehensive, integrated system between the active employees and the beneficiaries and everything that happened in the middle and all the accounting and investments. Yeah, so it's a... It's something that I'd like to hear candidates for the legislature and at the statewide level offer their plans, their their position, their solutions, if they have any. Because it's not going away. It's the same thing at the federal level. Can't talk about Social Security, Medicare. Even Donald Trump says, don't touch it, guys, because he only cares about getting elected. I know that's a shock. Politicians only caring about candidates getting elected. So if you talk about it like I am here today, you probably don't have a chance of getting elected just because you tell the truth. And it makes you wonder, does it? So I have to lie? I have to avoid the sensitive, thorny issues in order to be elected rather than face them head on? Guess what? That's how we got $32 trillion in debt. That's how Social Security and Medicare are headed for 
disastrous insolvency because nobody will talk about it because it means they can't get elected. Let's talk about something fun. I'm going to eliminate your taxes. I want that too. But we have obligations in PERS. We have obligations in Social Security and Medicare. What are we going to do about it? I saw Tim Scott. I think Tim Scott's great. I like him. I saw him the other day. He was doing a town hall. He was with Hannity earlier this week. And he said, we can't spend a dime more than we take in. I'm for you there, Tim. you got to get rid of $2 trillion of expenses. What are you going to eliminate? $2 trillion out of a $6.3 trillion budget. What are you going to eliminate? Can't touch Social Security and Medicare. I know I beat this horse to death, but these politicians at all levels got to quit saying that sort of stuff without any significant substantive ideas and plans. It's easy to say, we just got to rein in the spending. We spend too much. And everybody goes, yeah, we spend too much. Except you know what happens when they get elected? They oversee. They preside over. They vote for plans that produce gigantic deficits and add to the debt. Because they don't have any plans. Because anything they would suggest, people say, you can't do that, can't cut that, can't cut this, can't cut that. Okay. It's incredible. Man, oh man. There are a lot of parents who better get ready to get into the classroom if we lose PERS. Well, I'm not saying we're going to lose PERS, guys. I'm not trying to be the doom and gloom prognosticator there i'm just pointing out that it won't fix itself it doesn't there's no plan for it just to, it's just going to straighten up and again that applies to social security and medicare at the federal level as well and think about the top candidate on the republican side right now donald trump says we cannot touch that we can't okay well then it's going to go broke there's no doubt about it. That's just mathematical reality and fact. No, Thomas, we might as well embrace socialism. I don't even think you and I agree on what socialism is. We probably don't agree on what capitalism is or what conservatism is. By the way, I didn't get to this today, but Ford Motor Company is getting, is it a $6.2 billion grant? For EVs, a battery plant, I believe. Wait, I thought the president said we got to quit this corporate welfare. We got to quit all these these subsidies and these tax breaks for the various industries. Oh, except if it's electric vehicles, we can't write them enough checks. I'm sorry, we're out here today. We're just getting on a roll, but we're back with you on Monday. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.